This is your host, Bruce Ash, joining you live from my secure underground bunker located in the heart of Coronado, California, where thousands of patriots live free in this little village by the, by the Pacific Ocean. My good friend and Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and I are back live. And boy, are we glad. Boy, yes, are we, we are. pleased that all of you have joined us for a special Father's Day weekend edition of Inside Track. Eb? Bruce. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Bruce and I hope you've braved the heat this past week. The temps dropped down slightly uh, uh, on Monday throughout the rest of the week, but uh, Tuesday and uh, most parts here in southern Arizona will be sl- uh, still under a major heat wave. So stay in the shade, drink plenty of water, and keep cool. As you know, Bruce and I support the works of Sister Jose Women's Homeless Center here in Tucson. We're reaching out to all of our listeners Please help Jean Fedigan and her staff at Sister Jose keep their ladies safe. You can drop off cases of drinking water for the women at 1050 South Park. That's 1050 South Park on Park Avenue, just north of 22nd Street. For those of you who can't make it to their center building, you can direct your monetary gift to the ladies online at www. S-R-J-O-S-E, womensshelter.com. Sister Jose is helping nearly 1,000 homeless females in our downtown and making a huge difference. We hope you'll help out today because it's going to be a long, hot summer. When you donate to Sister Jose, you can provide the homeless women of Tucson access to showers and laundry, meals, clothing, shoes, and above all, a compassionate community in which they can develop the resources and confidence to live a sustainable life. Bruce and I really hope you'll help Jean Fedigan and her great group of professionals uh, that volunteer at Sister Jose. We welcome your calls at the Imus Wilkinson hotline, <coughs> 790-2040. Show's better with your participation. I believe we have another spectacular show for you today. Bruce. Hey, happy Father's Day to all the dads listening in today. We hope you enjoy a rich dad's day. Uh, like a new tie, a uh, sleeve of golf balls, or maybe just as simple as a funny Father's Day card. Your pops will really appreciate it. Happy Father's Day to my two sons, Matthew and Michael. Jane and I are very proud of both of them. They are great dads. It's amazing. They do things that I never even dreamt of doing uh, when they were growing up. And, they, and they're great role models uh, for their kids, just as my dad, uh, just as I uh, had a great role model when my dad was alive uh, and I was growing up. And, and dad, wherever you are, uh, although I can't see you or wish you a happy Father's Day in person, let's hope you hear this message. Happy Father's Day to you, Big Daddy-O. Eb? Yes, in just a moment, we'll chat with one of the truly good guys here in Southern Arizona and one of our great Inside Track advertising partners, Eric Rudin, from Essential Pest Control. In our final segment today, we'll go deep with the best-selling author, Jeff Shisol, about his newest book, Mercury Rising, the story of the 1960s American manned space program in the Cold War with Russia. Bruce. Hey, this, this portion of Inside Track is brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and his partner, the great one, Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. 
whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend on socialist security. Eb manages family wealth for my sister, and he does a fantabulous job. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. Hey, since we met the last time, our U of A men's basketball team beat the Old Miss Rebels and punched their ticket into the College World Series. Best of luck to them. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to give them the jinx. Uh, Phoenix Suns are waiting to take on, I believe, the uh, Los Angeles Clippers uh, in the Western Division Finals. Enough said there. That's all I'm going to say. And um, we'll wish them good luck as well, Eb. That sounds good. Hey, uh, on to our first guest, Inside Track advertising supporter, an old friend, not that he's old, Eric Rudin, who joins us on the Imus Wilkinson Live Line. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Yeah, it's been a while since you joined us. Uh, when the temps reach over 100 degrees, tell our listeners what they need to do to help protect their home and businesses from desert pests and critters. Well, this time of year, you're going to have a lot of uh, pest activity, um, but you're probably going to have some of the nighttime critters like the scorpions uh, that come out and heat and ants and those type of invaders inside the house. So keeping a diligent eye is uh, really important and uh, making sure that your house is pest-free and then doing regular maintenance to make sure that that happens. What sort of calls do you get, uh, like in the past week or so, with a spike of heat we had? Um, basically just kind of the usual pests. I mean, we do live in the desert and we have a lot of insects. You know, I always joke around with the Midwest people. We don't have to shovel snow. We have to deal with bugs. And um, during our desert environment, all those bugs are out there. So, uh, like I said, a lot of people are finding uh, spiders and sulpugids, which are, what you know, kind of sulpugids, kind of like an arthropod that looks like a scorpion but doesn't have pinchers. Oh, my God. Okay. So, <laughs> they're very actually intimidating looking. Most <laughs> people think they're a scorpion, but they're not. But they move really fast. Okay. And all of a sudden, someone has something in a house that's two inches long running straight at them um they might get a little bit scared but um it's basically a harmless spider but um it, it's kind of in that scorpion family what about those weird so, millipedes that i get every now and then in my house um those are actually more of um you know and kind of a garden pest and it's more accidental than um trying to come after you so um, they're typically not in that structural pest wheelhouse. Um, we also have a desert centipede. Um, it's only a couple inches long uh, with really wispy legs that sometimes people see. Um, the one that can be scary is a giant centipede, which, you know, can be seven or eight inches long. And someone sees that in their house, and uh, the scare factor definitely goes up. Are those poisonous at all? Uh, they do have poisonous tracks, so um, they're not not, not life-threatening, um, but uh, they can leave a nasty sting and some venomous tracks up someone's arm or leg uh, if they were sitting there. Uh, not very common, but it does happen occasionally. Oh, God. Hey, hopefully we'll see some monsoon <laughs> rains in the next month. Hey, when these rains come, how does that yeah. change the sorts of calls you get at Essential Pest? Uh, it's usually the mark of the termite season. So a lot of people start seeing uh, when the soil temperatures start to cool. So at the beginning of the monsoon, they won't see it. But when you start getting into August, um, people start noticing a lot of those termite trails and tubes on the outside of the house. Uh, 
Uh, they might see something coming down the ceiling or out of the drywall. And it'll basically just look like a dirt stain or a tunnel forming. And it's basically termites poking their head out, exploring around the house. So um, you're also going to hit swarming season. So it's not uncommon to see flying ants and flying termites, especially in the yards. And uh, if anybody's been here a long time, driving down river or Ina, um, they see these clouds of bugs in the early mornings. Yes. And they're like, what are those? Well, those clouds of bugs are those flying termites and flying ants mating. So uh, we tend to get a lot more flying insects at night, especially when you flip on the lights at night and all of a sudden you have thousands of bugs right outside your door. Wow. So uh, monsoons definitely brings a lot of flying insects. Uh, They're trying to go through their reproductive cycle. Yeah, great. Hey, Tom, let's take our first break. Eric, hang in there. Uh, We'll pick you up right on the other side of the break. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the the cities and counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street, open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Hey, welcome back to Inside Track. Bruce is here, Eb's here, and our guest for the next several minutes is Eric Rudin, our good friend who owns and operates Essential Pest Control here in Tucson. Hey, um, Eric, besides maybe Tucson, Oro Valley, Marana, you know, down into Sarita and uh, Green Valley, uh, where else does Essential do business these days? Have you branched out to any other areas? No, we're pretty much in a Tucson region. Um, you know, we, we we have gone around in uh, some specialized stuff within the states, but for the most part, uh, we stay between Oro Valley and Green Valley, and basically from Picture Rocks uh, all the way to Vale. Uh, pretty much our Tucson metro region area that we stick to. 
Yeah, so you're truly a hometown uh, business, which is uh, great. There's there's plenty of business uh, in a town like Tucson for for a great company. So I want to get back to something that you mentioned to Eb about swarming uh, um, these these flying uh, termites. We I didn't know that we had flying termites here in Tucson. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's only during the reproductive process. So when uh, there's moisture in the soil and we get a slight reduction in the soil temperature, uh, the kings and queens will form wings. They're basically called termite alates, and basically they will pair up. And once they uh, pair, they will actually go into the soil and burrow and start a new colony. So one thing that's very interesting about our termites is they're actually localized within our region only in the world. So uh, within the southwest, so New Mexico, Arizona, northern part of Mexico, a uh, little bit of California. And um, what's very prevalent about this termite is they don't have necessarily a large colony of 250,000 workers, but they can have many colonies. So you could actually have two or three colonies packing the same structure. So um, with that being said, we don't say, you know, Will a ter- house get termite? It's when a house will get termites. So yeah, great point. Uh, termites are very prevalent within this region in their reproductive process and are highly adapted to our desert environment. Well, ever since so we I got think, rid uh, of DDT, I guess that kind of made it a little bit easier for the termites to get along. Yeah, I mean, DDT had a very long lifespan. That product uh, within the soil would last uh, up to about 40 years. <sighs> Um, you know, it's actually a pretty decent product, but now that, nowadays when they design the product through the FDA process, they want to have a limited lifespan within the soil, which is understandable. If a house gets removed and destroyed, you still don't want product in the soil. So at this point, you know, our termiticides will last anywhere from five to 10 years, depending on the product and durability. Hmm. So while we're talking about termite uh, control, Talk about Centricon, because I think that's one of the processes that uh, you would essential pest uh, use to help protect homes and, and other structures from termites. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Centricon system. Um, it's actually the number one termite system uh, within the United States as far as baiting. Uh, it's even in the White House and a lot of our national landmarks. Uh, there's two thoughts when it comes to termite control. You can put a chemical product or a barrier around your house or you can actually bait for termites, feed them, and actually eliminate the colony. Uh, Centricon is the only product that actually claims complete colony elimination. So we put some um, bait devices around the entire structure, and as the termites feed upon them, they'll actually eliminate the uh, the termites completely. Uh, What's interesting about this is that um, some structures in Tucson are very unique, meaning multi-leveled. Uh, there are changes of grade. There might be a sunken living room. And those are areas that are very hard to treat with conventional liquids. So no matter what the construction type, Centricon will work no matter what. Um, so we've, when we started doing Centricon, it was actually interesting. We took our five biggest trouble houses. They were all custom homes with a lot of treatment problems. We could never get control with liquid. And we installed Centricon and within six months had 100% control and no termite activity in those houses. So Centricon is a very good product, especially when there's unique construction considerations with the home. So when you're doing the Centricon, how 
You said within six months you've got total elimination. How long? That just eliminates that, but it doesn't treat the house. Is that correct? Yeah, there's actually no chemical. I mean, you're only talking about a couple ounces of material uh, throughout the 40 or so bait stations that are placed around the house. So the thought process, instead of trying to keep the termites out, why don't we just kill all the termites? And um, so it's kind of a different thought process. It takes a little bit of time because you have to recruit the termites into the bait device, and they have to consume the bait device. But once the termites eliminated, they're completely gone, reducing the termite pressure on the house. And the system remains in place because, like I said earlier, with all the swarming in the new colonies, if there's a new colony, then they'll find those bait devices and eventually end up dying as well. But uh, Centricon is very unique. Is it, It's not about trying to prevent and repel. Um, it's a reduced impact product that actually physically eliminates the termites, not through some nefarious toxin, but it's actually what they call a chitin synthesis inhibitor, which basically stops them from reproducing the molting on their skin, which is specific to insects and not human beings. So it's very targeted to the biology of the termite itself. Hmm. So your team, I'm assuming, made it through this crazy last 15 months. I hope everybody's healthy. Yeah, we're all doing well. Um, we had a couple workers over the span of the times that uh, suspected that they got sick. And, you know, obviously they stayed home and had the mitigation practices, but everybody's doing well. And uh, we can, were able to continue to operate through the um, coronavirus crisis, if you will. Um, yeah. And everybody's doing very well. Um, I'm just fortunate that our business was able to keep afloat because, uh, many people in other industries have not been so successful. Yeah, so so tell our listeners what kind of precautions your crews take to protect your customers when you're you know in their homes or businesses, um, so that both they're protected as well as the customer is protected. Yeah. So basically, at this point, we are still practicing some mitigation practices. Um, all our technicians do have face coverings. Uh, we always use gloves, so that's pretty typical. And we even have house booties. That's actually more for just being polite and not tracking in dirt in the home versus protection. But, um, you know, we've always kind of had a standard of trying to have safe practice with the, with the customer that's there. So at this point, with so many people that have either been vaccinated or have had natural immunities, um, from having the coronavirus and having those natural antibodies, um, we are leaving it up to the customer when it comes to that discretion. So if they want our technician to mask and glove and make sure that there's no contact, then at that point our technicians are able to do that. And if they feel more comfortable in being open, then the technician will acquiesce to the wishes of the homeowner as well. So we're trying to adapt to the needs of our client instead of having a one-size-fits-all for everybody at this point. Hopefully so, that's Eric, better, but it's kind of uh, hard to deal with cut the public. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. So, so uh, kind of switching topics a little bit, I want to talk about things that fly around like bees and pigeons and other sort of nuisance birds. Um, so what's the status in the Tucson area with, you know, the Africanized bees and, you know, all of the bee problems that seem to be sort of a, a, a point, uh, you know, a exclamation point for, for homeowners this past 10 years or so. Uh, are we still having a lot of attacks of Af Africanized bees and those kind of colonies? 
Yeah, I mean, bees are going to be something that's going to be with us for a very long time, especially Ascanized bees. Remember, the public needs to remember this is a non-indigenous species. This is not part of our natural pollinating process. Um, these bees are originated from Africa through South America um, and being very evasive, pushing out a lot of our natural species. So uh, one of the things that makes them so prevalent, not only just their aggressiveness, but in their mating practices as well. Um, so their drones are born sooner than the European honeybees that people are accustomed to. So they tend to proliferate more and have more colonies break off. So it's basically prudent uh, to eliminate this very evasive uh, non-indigenous species within our region uh, because they can present a threat to a homeowner uh, when they go out there. Because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, we don't want you to kill bees. We don't want you to kill this pest. But you have to remember this is an evasive, non-indigenous species. Um, so at that point, you know, when we when a homeowner has bees, and I recommend homeowners walking around their house, looking at the ease and the cracks and crevices up and above. And if they notice bees coming in and out, um, you know, call a professional. Have somebody come out and take care of them, and we can eliminate that problem. And if they've been there for a long period of time, and have honeycomb and that sort of thing, then we have the ability um, to remove the bird board and take out the honeycomb uh, and make sure that that problem doesn't happen again. So the other nuisance uh, for homeowners and for businesses, and we have this a lot in, in various uh, properties we operate, are pigeons and all of the mess that they make on roofs and how they roost in, in sort of the, the worst sort of areas. Um, so is this something that uh, Essential handles as well with pigeons and other flying yeah. birds? We do a lot of pigeon work. Um, one of the things that's uh, interesting about pigeons, um, they're actually my least favorite pest of all pests that we deal with. Um, you know, I, I love wildlife. I love animals. But their feces is filled with other parasites, um, filled with disease and um, basically is acidic, so it destroys paint and materials yeah, and so on, very common for staining. Um, really, these are worse than rats in the sky. Um, I, I am not a big fan of pigeons because they're very highly destructive to a structure and disease-ridden with their parasites and nests. I mean, it's one of the few animals that will actually nest within its own feces, which uh, is pretty disgusting. So uh, I know that doesn't <laughs> sound good to the audience, but the reality is uh, pigeons is a, uh, a big problem. So uh, we have a lot of capabilities uh, from pigeon trapping um, to putting up devices to deter them in the future. Um, most people think of traditional spikes. We have some items that are a little bit more aesthetically teased pleasing, uh, like bird wire, electronic tracks. Uh, we even have some gel disc devices. Um, but there's a lot of different devices that are customized to each project, whether it's a home or a commercial building, to try to pervert, preserve the aesthetics of the building while eliminate, eliminating areas that pigeons can roost. So um, they're definitely a species that um, you, you want to be careful around the house just because of the known diseases and um, the acidic nature of the feces that destroys paint and facades and everything else. 
So listeners, you can tell by by the amount of emphasis that Eric has put on these flying rats. Yeah. Uh, they're just they're awful. They're awful pests, and uh, uh, they can help you uh, with with your bird problems uh, that you might have at your at your house or your commercial property. So you started in in the in the pest elimination business as one of the fellows who worked as a service rep and probably on some uh, new construction uh, jobs uh, doing pest or pest prevention. We read about how difficult it is to find and keep employees. What sort of jobs are available today at Essential Pest Control? Well, I actually think pest control is a wonderful career. Um, I started at six bucks an hour um, way back when, when when minimum wage was much lower, uh, just answering a newspaper ad. That's how I got started in the industry. Um, And then I was able to work up as a technician and manager and eventually buy my own company. And I find it being a very rewarding career because, you know, usually in the service industry, you're kind of treated like the hired help. But when you come in and save the day and you, you uh, help someone eliminate a scorpion problem or bees and, you know, the homeowners say it's so thankful, you know, when you go to their house on a regular basis, you become part of the family, you, you know, the kids' names, you know, uh, the pets, and they greet you. And sometimes there's even, you know, a lemonade or a drink or something that the homeowner ends up leaving. You just uh, – you know, make your day a little bit better. So it makes me feel good. And I like having that interpersonal relationship. And we have a lot of jobs that kind of fit depending on people's skill sets. You know, we have residential guys that go and meet the homeowner every single, uh, every couple months. And then we have the termite guys that maybe do a single job. And, um, you know, it's just, there's a lot of variety that people can end up doing, you know, even have administrative office work as well. So, um, but I find that this industry is very rewarding because we're presented with unique problems each day. We're able to solve those problems and people appreciate that we solve those problems as well. So, uh, I think it's a wonderful industry. I might be a little bit biased because I've been in it my entire life, but, uh, I do enjoy it immensely. Eric, we had somebody so- call in asking about leaf cutter and yep so um do we have those in tucson that, yeah absolutely so we have leaf cutter ants and harvester ants um what makes those ants unique is that those ants will not die with a store-bought bait um because they don't get their food from um gathering and scavenging materials they actually grow their food from the leaves that they end up collecting. Um, so um, basically leaf cutters, which uh, typically have the high mounds, meaning they can be up to six inches to a foot off the ground. They kind of look like little volcanoes. They're a very large ant, and they'll actually just start tearing into various plants and shrubs within the garden, stripping them away and cutting them. That's why they get their name leaf cutters. They'll carry that material back, and then they'll end up growing their food off the material that they end up collecting. Um, With those particular ants, um, they require chemical treatment, um, usually flooding of the mound, um, and then we'd end up granulating around the surface area. But because you can only get so much product in the ground, it may take a couple different applications. But uh, that particular ant species is a little bit tougher than just throwing out a little bit of ant bait and walking away and knowing the problem solved. Um, and, and they also sting, and they're pretty intimidating looking. 
Hey, Eric, thanks for joining us. Uh, Essential Pest Control, Bugs Fear the Blue. Call Eric if you're looking for a great job or if you need some help with your uh, with your house or, or business, uh, call Eric at Essential uh, Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Eb and I do business with Eric and his professional team. You should also. Producer Tom, let's go ahead and go to break. Stay tuned. Uh, we're going to talk about something else that's flying when we return with Mercury Rising author Eric Shesol after these important messages. Stay tuned. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. To you by our friend, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. They have some of the best surplus materials they've ever had in stock to help you with your next project. Everyone can find something for the home or ranch at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus and all at super low prices. Don't go to the big box store. Check out what they have to offer in the 700 block of East 36th Street. And hey, when you visit Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus, Ask Jamie about her chickens and maybe pick up a dozen eggs while you're there. These are two great locally owned family businesses you can depend on. Bruce and I do. So should you. Okay, on to our first guest. Um, I think Eb and I are pleased to introduce our feature book interview today with Jeff Shesol. Tom, do we have Jeff on the line? Still waiting, still waiting for Jeff to call. Tom, I've, I've just emailed you his emergency phone number, uh, so why don't you give him a call, and Eb and I will wing it in the meantime, okay? Yes, sir. Okay. So, um, uh, anyway, Jeff, you know, it's kind of interesting talking to Eric the way we did. Um, I learned a lot from him, 
And um, it's it's amazing that a guy who uh, deal we think just deals with bugs actually would find uh, that these birds and and other flying pests are kind of the worst thing that that he ends up dealing with. Yeah, I would never pigeons. have I would never have thought about him dealing with pigeons or any of the other flying uh, birds. Bees, sure, I can get that. You know, I understand that. But uh, pigeons, you know, I this is where Doctor Demento comes in and poisoning pigeons in the park. You know, or uh, you know, flying bits of lead particles. But, uh, yeah, they're a pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, um, I'm not sure where Jeff is. Uh, Tom uh, needs to get in contact with him. He has all of his numbers. So hopefully he'll get uh, to him very soon. Um, while we're waiting for Jeff to join us, let me just give you a little bit of background on him. Uh, Jeff uh, Shisol is the author of the great new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn. John Kennedy and the New Battleground of the Cold War. And just to give you a little bit of background on Jeff Schiesel, uh, he's the author of Mercury Rising, his previous book, Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt versus the Supreme Court, which was selected as a New York Times Notable Book of the Year in 2010 and a favorite book of the year by The New Yorker. Uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin describes supreme power as stunning. Uh, this kind of book, she said, uh, that comes along once in a generation. Jeff's previous book, Mutual Contempt, Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy, and the Feud That Defined a Decade, was also a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Arthur Schlesinger, a very noted presidential uh, biographer, called Mutual Contempt, the most gripping political book of recent years. And the New York Times, uh, Michiko uh, Katatani, described the book as riveting and uh, said, Mr. Shisol does an authoritative job of giving us a vivid, almost novelistic sense of both of his protagonists, while at the same time situating their political stands within a historical context. In 1997, President Bill Clinton read Mutual Contempt, and he invited Mr. Schiesel to become one of his speechwriters. During his three years at the White House, Schiesel became the deputy chief speechwriter and a member of his senior staff. He played a leading role in drafting two State of the Union addresses, the president's 2000 Democratic National Convention speech and the farewell address amongst his hundreds of other speeches. He covered a range of issues. He covered a number of issues during his time and um, he um, also was part of the team that produced the acclaimed short film, The Final Days. He also was a, a was a comic strip uh, guy, uh, syndicated from '94 to '98. And Jeff, we had a little bit of a, uh, a scare. Uh, we didn't hear from you right away, but it's great to have you join us on Inside Track. I read the Wall Street Journal review of Mercury Rising. Your book was released June 1st by W. W. Norton. The W. The uh, Wall Street Journal loved the book a lot. My co-host and I. Uh, Ab received a copy. Wow, it, it, it's really fabulous. As a boomer, an avid space race follower myself and political person, I love the premise of the book. Tell us about the premise of what prompted you to write Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Well, thanks so much. And sorry to give you a scare there, but I'm here now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm you're here. That's all good. Hey, yeah, Bruce, I'm going to interrupt. Uh, Jeff. You can pronounce it Schiesel, but Jeff pronounces his last name Schessel. I do. I do. It's my 
I, I have to say, when you have a name like Shessel, you accept many different pronunciations. All right, Jeff Shessel, <laughs> go ahead. All right, terrific. Uh, well, well, thanks for um, describing the book. And, and I, I, you asked why I decided to, to write about this particular episode in the history of the space race. And I, I think it's a couple of things. Um, one is that I, I've been a space enthusiast, like a lot of people, for a long time. I've read these books. I've seen the movies. I, I enjoy all this. And I, I I, of course, understood that, that John Glenn had achieved something significant. He was the first American to orbit the Earth. But I wanted to understand, uh, as a historian, why that was so significant. Uh, I understood that it was another step along the way, another step along the way to the moon. At, at the same time, by the time John Glenn orbited the Earth, two Russians had done the same thing. And he wasn't the first American in space. He was the third American in space. So what was it about this flight that made it really the, the pinnacle of the space race in terms of public enthusiasm until 1969 when you get to the moon landing? What was it that drew four million New Yorkers out into the streets to celebrate John Glenn after his flight, the biggest demonstration in New York in the freezing cold, by the way, since the end of World War II? I knew there had to be more to it than John Glenn's winning personality, which is a very real element in this. And what it comes down to, in my view, and this is the story that I tell in the book, is that this was a Cold War contest. And I know that everybody understands that we were racing against the Russians. But I think when we talk about it as a space race, it makes it in a way seem a little more good-natured than it actually was. It makes it sound like the Olympics, like a, a, a contest, when in fact the way it was understood in the early 1960s was that this was an existential struggle. As John Kennedy said in 1960 when he was running for president, he said, if the Soviets control space, they will control the Earth. And that, to me, is what made this moment so significant and what made this flight which was really the, the flight that puts America belatedly, after four years of being well behind the Soviet Union, finally puts America in the space race, finally shows that America can credibly compete. Hmm. Your book describes the battlefield of space. Former Allied Supreme Commander and President Dwight D. Eisenhower thought of space exploration as, quote, a space or space for peace endeavor. Uh, a key issue in the 1960 election. If you remember, you're a historian, I'm not, but I remember it. It was the missile gap between America and the Soviet Union. John F. Kennedy talked about demilitarizing state, uh, space uh, exploration. NASA specifically establishes a civilian agency. Describe that fight for that battlefield, that space uh, for peace uh, that Eisenhower talked about and that uh, Kennedy dreamt of. Eisenhower was concerned that if he left space exploration to the military, which is where it started, uh, every military branch except for the Marines had its own space program. The Air Force, Navy, Army, they all had their own missiles. They all had their own spacecraft that they were developing. And Eisenhower thought that if he left it to the military, that there was going to be an arms race in space. And, and indeed, a, a lot of these military planners were were coming up with ideas like armed space stations, for example, or fighter planes that would engage in space. And, and so when Eisenhower created NASA in 1958, he and the Congress, he moved 
human space flight out of the military and into this new civilian space agency, NASA, which, as you might expect, was a very unpopular decision among the military branches. And they continued to wage sort of a rear guard action to take it back. And when John Kennedy campaigned in 1960, making that argument, as I said before, that space was not just a symbol, it was a national security concern, the Air Force in particular thought, well, you know, maybe we can win Kennedy over to our side. But ultimately, Kennedy resisted uh, the militarization of space just as Eisenhower did. At the same time, the United States knew that the Soviet Union was very likely to militarize space, particularly if they were left free just to dominate space. There was a lot of talk in the U.S. and across the, the Western Europe about the possibility of the Soviets building. I mean, it sounds incredible to us, but there's a lot of talk about this a nuclear base on the moon outside the range of our defenses. So rather than engage in an arms race in space, what Kennedy wanted to do was show that we were credible, that we could do anything technologically that we wanted to do in space. And he hoped that that would be enough to deter the Soviets. And Jeff, you know, I had uh, the uh, a clip of Kennedy's uh, speech to Congress uh, after he became president. Uh, we're not going to play it. But uh, not all members of Congress shared the president's ambition uh, for, for space exploration, did they? No, they didn't. And you know what's interesting about that speech that you mentioned, that speech toward the end of May 1961, when Kennedy announces that we're going to try to go to the moon by the end of the decade, and, and that famous line, that if you watch that speech, and I encourage everybody to watch, pull it up on YouTube, you see that after Kennedy makes that bold proclamation, he begins to, to ad-lib, and he gets uncomfortable, and he starts to shuffle his papers around and, and say um a lot. It's very uncharacteristic for, for John Kennedy, of course, was such an incredible speaker. And he has the sense that he's losing his audience. And what he says is, Look, essentially, he says, this is not verbatim, he says, look, if, if, uh, if we're going to do this, it's going to be a huge commitment uh, of taxpayer dollars and science and technology and expertise over a very long period of time. And the Congress has to buy in and the American people have to buy in. And the worst thing uh, that we could do would be to say we're going to do it and then somewhere along the path just give up because it's too hard or it's too expensive. So what he says is, you better think about this and make sure you want to do this. He's not giving them the hard sell uh, because he's a little uncertain himself. He's kind of gotten backed into making this commitment to go to the moon because he has to do something dramatic to counter the Soviets uh, because they are, are just dominating. And so Kennedy himself has to sell himself on this goal over the, the months that follow. Yeah, I'm going to turn you over to my uh, co-host, Eb, in just a second. But I watched that video, and um, I was surprised. I saw exactly what you saw, and it, very interesting, uh, that, that reaction from members of Congress that evening. Uh, Eb, go ahead. Hey, Jeff, tell us about the letter from the Air Force that got leaked. Well, uh, the Air Force, um, it, uh, on, the, on the eve of, of Kennedy's uh, inaugural, um, decided, as I mentioned before, the, the Air Force had never really accepted this idea of space for peace. They, they thought it was uh, kind of a disaster. Um, they thought it was a, a really dangerous indulgence, and they resented Eisenhower, frankly. I mean, of course, Eisenhower was the great general of, of World War II, 
but they felt that he just didn't get this stuff. And on a certain level, they were right. He didn't get space. He wasn't interested in space. And they thought that he was really missing something. And so uh, on the eve of um, uh, Kennedy's inaugural, the Air Force decided they weren't just going to go try to have a meeting uh, with Kennedy, but they were going to actually launch a, a public campaign uh, through all of their allies out there in the press, through uh, the, air, the, uh, air, the, the trade associations and the defense contractors that had a stake in this. And they were going to push Kennedy publicly um, to uh, give up on this, this sort of silly, naive idea of, of um, space for peace and to give control of manned spaceflight back to the Air Force where it belonged. And uh, just in case, uh, so they, they, they developed this guidance. The Office of the Secretary of, of the Air Force developed a, a set of guidance for, for the various uh, public affairs officers across the Air Force. Uh, but again, just to make sure that nobody missed the point, they leaked the letter. And it wound up in the New York Times. It wound up all over the place. And it signaled the beginning of a very intense campaign to, to convince John Kennedy. Wow. But, uh, you know, with that being said, wouldn't you agree the Soviets, though, did have a political and military purpose for their space program. Absolutely. We, we said that our, 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 our interests in space were peaceful, and we meant it. Uh, the Air Force didn't necessarily mean it, but the United States government, the Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy administration, they meant it. The Soviets said the same thing, but they did it with kind of a wink. And while we made a, a, a real show of uh, of, of bringing our astronauts out to meet the public at the very beginning of of the space program. When we introduced the astronauts, they were not wearing military uniforms, even though all of them had come from the military. They were wearing suits and ties. And it was a a signal. It was a very deliberate signal that this is a civilian space program, and they are not operating here in their capacity as military pilots, military test pilots. The Soviets made no such pretense. And so when the cosmonauts uh, had had orbited the Earth, they would would stand atop Lenin's mausoleum in Red Square with Khrushchev, and they would wear their their red Air Force uniforms. And they gave press conferences in which they talked about the military capabilities of their space capsules, entirely fabricated, by the way. I mean, all of that was just lies and propaganda. But we were so, in the West, were so bedazzled by Soviet successes in space that on a certain level we believed just about everything that they said. I mean, if they said that they had developed a spacecraft that they could maneuver in space and that they could land anywhere on Earth, and they said that, then a lot of experts in the United States tended to believe it. Again, it was a lie, but it was very credible given their successes in space. We know to that end, though, even though they were lying, they were blatantly lying, uh, they still had a significant lead on the American technology as uh, Kennedy took office. They did, and and there was no getting around it. And uh, even though there was suspicion on the part of the... the, uh, military-industrial complex and the intelligence community here in the United States that the Soviets had to be failing somehow. I mean, surely our rockets were blowing up on the launch pad all the time. Surely that was happening to them. But nobody was really even sure where the Soviet launch complex was. They operated as a totalitarian system under a blanket of total secrecy. So they were allowed to fail in public, and they had some horrific disasters. I mean, they had an explosion on the launch pad that killed over 100 people. One of their cosmonauts died in an absolutely horrific, 
horrific fire, and yet none of that was public. In fact, that the fate of that cosmonaut wasn't revealed until I think it was the 1990s. And so there was the perception of invulnerability on the part of the Soviet Union. All we ever saw were the successes, and they had a lot of them. I mean, it was it began, of course, with Sputnik in 1957, but there was a succession of Soviet firsts over the course of four years. I mean, it seemed that just about every milestone that mattered in space, they were there first. Well, with that being said, they paid for every one of those successes with all their fails. Hey, uh, we're talking to Jeff Schessel about his great new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Wasn't there a direct connection to development of ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, for the military payload delivery, and also for manned spaceflight, like uh, Atlas, uh, Titan II boosters, which were used in Mercury and Gemini programs to get America to the moon by 1969? That's right. You want, you, when you put a space capsule on top of it, you call it a booster, but when you put a nuclear payload on top of it, you call yeah. it an ICBM. And this was essentially the same rocket technology. The rocket that John Glenn rode into orbit was, as you said, it was an Atlas rocket. And the Atlas had been designed by the Air Force uh, and its private in, partners in private industry as an ICBM. And it was a very uh, it was a very effective ICBM. Uh, I mean, if it had to be used, it was going to be very effective. It was easy to aim. The guidance system was impressive. Uh, it was uh, it was a it, it was a good weapon, as weapons go. Um, but when you put a heavy space capsule um, and ultimately with a human being inside it at, at the top of one of these things, uh, it was a different matter. And that was the configuration that was having all kinds of, of trouble that was blowing up on the launch pad. At a certain point, the Air Force actually asked NASA to stop doing Atlas tests because they thought that the troubles of the Atlas with the capsule on top was, was ruining its credibility as an ICBM. They, they, they said you're making it look like the the Atlas is a terrible uh, missile, and it's not. It's when you use it for your purposes that that it that it is ineffective. And and so yes, the technology was the same up to a point, um, but it, there was a there was a, a profound difference when you were putting a human being on top of one of these. Sure, they've got to survive the the liftoff. That's right. And those capsules weren't that big at all. I mean. No, they were. They there was were very little room in them. There was very little room. In fact, the cabin of Friendship Seven, which was John Glenn's capsule, was about the size of the cockpit of a fighter jet. I mean, he really had no room to to move at all. The 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 control panel sort of wrapped around him. Everything was 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 just right there in front of his face. Jeff, in the remaining moments that we had um, together here today, no Russian has ever stepped foot on the lunar surface, or for that matter, has not landed on any foreign planet, but there may soon be a Chinese astronaut who lands on the moon, and perhaps there's an America returning. What are your thoughts about that, and, and, and might we be looking at a new space race and not just to the moon? I think we're in it right now. We're, we're, we're in a new space race, uh, with China in particular. I, I mean, China is certainly not the only country with capacity in space. Uh, Russia has not given up the game. Russia has indicated less interest in, in landing people on 
you know, on the moon and, and on Mars, but, but China is, is making no secret of its ambition in that regard. In fact, uh, uh, the Chinese government was just talking this week based on its success in getting its astronauts up to the new space station that they're building, based on the, the fact that they put a lander on Mars right on the heels of our lander on Mars. They're talking about the long-term colonization of, of Mars, uh, laying out a, a vision for that, a, a kind of very, I mean, at, at this point, it's obviously a pretty rough plan for something that's decades away. And yet, it's hard to say that, that it's not credible. Uh, the, China is putting a lot of resources and, and a lot of science and engineering behind this, and, and they're on the move. And um, we continue in this country to uh, make advances, um, really impressive advances in space. And at the same time, uh, the budget debate about NASA is bogged down, um, as it has been for, for decades. And it's not entirely clear that, that the, the U.S. public and, and the U.S. Congress, um, which holds the purse strings, are committed to the idea of exploring space as, as vigorously, let's say, as, as China is. Yeah. You've written some very interesting books. I'm intrigued by your book about Robert Kennedy and and LBJ uh, and the contentious relationship they had. Um, And uh, I I wish you the best of luck on this new book. I think it's a cool book and and it's a part of it's a part of the manned space program that really we don't we don't really think much about these things but these were key parts of of that uh of that space race of the whole program and really they they're here today as well looking at this space program so mercury rising john glenn john kennedy and the new battleground of the cold war it's available online at all the usual places it's a good one the wall street journal liked it bruce likes it and jeff i appreciate you taking time to talk with us today Thanks so much for having me. It's been great talking with you guys. All right. Great. And until, uh, until next week, uh, we have author uh, Donald Ritchie about his new book, uh, uh, the, guest, the Columnist, Leaks, Lies, and Libel, and Drew Pearson's Washington. We've got a load of great guests coming up through July. Stay tuned. Stay out of the heat. Drink plenty of water. Until next time, this is Eb Wilkinson and... Bruce Ash. Thank you for joining us here today and wishing all the dads a happy Father's Day. Thank you. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911.
1911.